Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for September 24th, 2017. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jack Dean at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon today is entitled, End That. I hope that you pay attention to the work we put into creating a bulletin each week and know that every item is chosen for a reason. I hope you've taken time to read Charles Darwin this morning and the notes that I literally scratched in the margin of that book this two weeks ago when I was reading this gives you a little insight into my crazy brain and how it works and how I come up with sermon ideas and titles sometimes. I wanted to call your attention to that. And I wanted to say, if you have paid close attention to my preaching over the last 10 years, and I know that all of you have, I know all of you sit in rapt attention listening to every word, if you have listened closely, you will know that I am engaged in a kind of ongoing battle with atheism. It's an odd thing for a Baptist minister, the son of a Southern Baptist minister who's been in church every day of his life. Most of the people I know are Christian. Um... I'm not sure how I got into this, but this idea that, that some atheists posit out there that anybody with a brain will be an atheist, it just kind of drives me crazy. And so you will hear little bits and pieces in some of my sermons about, uh, about this idea. Maybe it's just kind of an intellectual quest of mine that I can meet the uh, objections of the atheist and respond to them. Um, So today's sermon is a little bit philosophical. I've preached two sermons directly uh, to the issue of atheism. I've put a few copies of those in the vestibule if you care to see them. Um, Today's sermon will be a little bit philosophical. I get to use the word quantum physics a couple times, so you you know how much I like that. So don't let me lose you, because there's a practical aspect to this, as I hope with all of my sermons I'm not a preacher that says the world's going to hell in a handbasket, but I do believe that our society is increasingly secular, and that there are voices that are antagonistic to the church, and I think that we need to be aware, and we need to have handles and ways to speak to those increasingly hostile voices about our beliefs in God, about our belief in transcendence, about the importance of church and community and spirit. So I hope there will be a practical um, take home for you if you'll stay with me to the end. As a child, I was mesmerized with my father's preaching. I was a diligent disciple. I listened intently. I took notes, filling my beloved leather-bound King James Version of the Bible with sermon outlines. This holy Bible with my name proudly embossed in silver letters is filled with underlined text and scribbled margins. I love my father's preaching, but the truth is that I remember very little that he said specifically, which is a kind of sobering thought for a preacher, you know. If your most admiring fan remembers almost nothing you said 40 years later, well, what did you really say? And I'm going to leave that thought for another day, perhaps another sermon. 
Because as I begin this morning, I want to share with you uh, one of the stories that I do remember my father preaching from his pulpit. I have forgotten the man's name, the subject of the story, but my daddy told me one day on a Sunday morning about the day the famous atheist came to town to lecture. He had come to the big city to prove his intellect as well as the stupidity of anyone weak-brained enough to believe in some comic, cosmic cartoon in the sky who answers selfish prayers, controls hurricanes, visits wrath on the ungodly. To prove himself, the famous atheist stood on the stage and gave his opening monologue, which was a diatribe against such a foolish and feeble, quaint and quacky, silly and superstitious notion. Then, to further prove his intrepid rejection of this God, his fearful resistance, his fearless resistance to the so-called divine, he he offered a test to the heavens. If there is a God, he bellowed with mocking condescension, I will give him 60 seconds to strike me dead on this stage right now. Right now, God, if you exist, here I am. Strike me down. I dare you. And having laid down the gauntlet, he pulled out a large clock. It was one of that old-fashioned kind that had actual hands that go around the face on it. He set it on the podium, and the crowd hushed into rapt attention perhaps a bit of fear, as the second hand made its way round that bold minute-long challenge. When the silent minute that seemed more like an anxious, anxious hour to some was over, the proud atheist smiled as if he had really proven something that day. Silly God. Before he could speak, though, A little old woman, hunched with age, stood propping on her cane. She raised a remarkably strong voice in that auditorium as she chided the shallow arrogance of this man's supposed brilliance. If you think, she said, that you can challenge the patience and the power of Almighty God in just 60 seconds, you are a bigger fool even than I thought. In the wilderness, the children of Israel laid down their own gauntlet of challenge. Through Moses, God had led them out of bondage in Egypt, but so soon, though they were free of the Pharaoh's oppression, they complained. They wanted their full freedom, and they wanted it right then. They'd heard of that land flowing with milk of honey, that place of prosperity, and they wanted it right then. They deserved it right then. Now, I hope I don't have to spell out for you the obvious implications and application for a society of instant gratification. We are a people who want what we want when we want it. We are a society in which everyone can whine out of their own entitlement mentality. One of our favorite complaints being everyone else's entitlement mentality. It is appropriate that that place was named in Hebrew the wilderness of sin. We are wandering the same sandy wastelands so many years later. Leaders get tired of whiny people, you know. Complaints, 
Even legitimate complaints sap your energy, drain your enthusiasm. They wear you down. And Moses was weary. The people had started complaining virtually the day they left Egypt. And in this newest complaint, they took aim at Moses again, and they even turned on God. Well, why do you quarrel with me, Moses asked them. The Hebrew verb for quarrel is rib, R-I-B. I don't know if there's any connection to our expression to rib someone, but when the Israelites ribbed Moses, they were not teasing. They quarreled with him incessantly. The name Meribah, you see the verb rib, Meribah, indicates this complaining. And Moses also says to the people, and why do you test the Lord? And the Hebrew verb to test is found in the name Massah, Meribah and Massah, to complain and to test. And what was their basic complaint at Meribah? And in what way had God failed them at Massah? In his commentary on Exodus, Walter Brueggemann, the Christian scholar who is one of the world's leading experts on the Hebrew Scriptures, says the people are not arguing whether God exists. This fact was not in question for them. They weren't even complaining that God did not have world-altering, life-giving power. That fact was also assumed in their worldview. No, their test of God was more personal and much more selfish. Is the Lord among us or not, they ask. Because even though they believed in an all-powerful deity, in that moment, God had not stepped up to answer their cries specifically and promptly. God had not, to their complete satisfaction, answered their questions. Brueggemann says, the only evidence of Yahweh's presence that Israel would accept was the concrete action that saved them right there. Thus, Israel collapses God's promise into its own well-being and refuses to allow Yahweh any life apart from Israel's own well-being. The question makes the religious issue completely pragmatic. Will God do what we want? Even though the people were not praying for a new Cadillac, water is a matter of life and death, so their question was important, their thirst was real. But the point here is that the people came to God demanding the existence of God in a practical way, hinged on God giving satisfaction to their selfish needs, their nearsighted vision. In effect, The practical existence of God depended on the people having had their own needs met on their own terms. If God really was, then God would perform for them their wants, their wishes, their demands right then. Now, the irony of this story, like so many of the biblical narratives, is that the people actually get what they want. But we will miss a powerful message if we just turn this text into another miracle story. The people pray, God answers, hallelujah. 
This text is more about a people being faithless than it is about God being faithful. In his book called Meditations, Thomas More has this to say about pragmatic religion. A billboard near an old house of mine displayed in six-foot type, all capital letters, pray, period, it works, period. I always thought this was the ultimate in American pragmatism. If it doesn't work, do you stop praying? And what does it mean to say prayer works? You get what you want? Life gets better? My billboard would say in all capital letters, pray, period. It may not work, period. Prayer is an alternative to working hard to get what you want because one discovers eventually that what you want is almost always what you do not need. Pray, period. Don't expect anything, or better, expect nothing. Prayer cleanses us of expectations and allows holy will, providence, and life itself an entry. What could be more worth the effort or the non-effort? Out of our selfishness, born of our natural hungers, we so easily turn religion in general and prayer in specific into a blunt tool for manipulating God. We demand, and if God doesn't do what we want, when we want, we either turn our disappointment and anger on one another, well, you aren't faithful enough, you aren't good enough, or God would have answered your prayer, or we turn that anger, that disappointment on God, blaming God for the world's evil or dismissing the idea of God altogether. People of faith are guilty enough of developing this blind spot in their vision, but even more perturbing to me are offenders, uh, more perturbing offenders to me are those smug, self-righteous atheists, the antagonistic agnostics who think they have outsmarted God. We have some of those in our own church. We've had some of those in our own church. I heard one skeptic say in a conversation that turned to the providence of God, the action of God in the world, well, absence of evidence is evidence of absence, which is apparently a cute little slogan the disprovers of God like to quote. Apparently, God is beholden to atheists too, obligated to respond to their demands in their ways, kind of like the Israelites. And since in our modern world, God doesn't show up under a microscope at the long end of the telescope, God hasn't appeared or done what they think a God should do, which is ironically pretty much the same thing fundamentalists think a God should do, atheists easily dismiss the divine. It's remarkable to me. So many who are antagonistic to God and to the church have only the very shallowest notions of religion. We live in an era of genetic engineering, artificial intelligence, in an arena of a mostly inconceivable quantum physics, and we bring these disciplines to court 
and ask them to argue against the imagery of a God befitting all the sophistication of a third grade Sunday school class, complete with the concrete biblical imagery of a pre-scientific three-tiered universe. You see, it's no wonder that kind of God loses in that kind of trial. I should hasten to add that this failing is too much a self-inflicted wound by the church as large parts of the church Sunday after Sunday do their pulpit pounding part to keep such an inadequate antiquated notion of God and such woodenly literalistic interpretations of Scripture alive and well. We are our own worst enemy. It is my strong belief, however, And I believe the conviction of the best minds of all the world's religions, not that I'm one of the best minds of all the world's religions. I believe if you have lost interest in the church or lost faith because God is not big enough, it's not God who has failed. It might be the church. It might be the religious academy. It might be the academy It might be the default assumptions of a growing secularism, and it may be you. It may be that you have failed out of an unwillingness or an inability to see what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the God beyond God. That is, God who will always exceed our very best conceptualizations of the divine. We speak of God in language, there's no other way to do it. That language creates images. It's inevitable. But that's not God. That's our language of God. And Bonhoeffer says there's always a God beyond God. To borrow from Amy's sermon last week, the language that she used, if you have not exploited your creativity in your faith, you may very well never find God. Many contemporary disbelievers, antagonists of religion and belief, base their descent on a modern worldview that is largely founded on science. But science is changing. In fact, it has already changed. And a growing number of cosmologists and theoretical physicists find in the uncertainties of a quantum world room for God. As Charles Darwin did. Despite the popular notion that Darwin was the father of a godless evolution, this was not Darwin's perspective. Though his idea of God did change, amidst the chaos and creativity of evolving wonder, Charles Darwin still held faith in God. There is grandeur in life, Darwin said, having been breathed by the Creator, and that. Whilst this planet goes on cycling, and that, God, even for Darwin, God was the constant. In his book, Days of Awe and Wonder, the late Marcus Borg addresses this change in worldview. Already there are signs of the eclipse of this view. Within the theoretical sciences, the modern worldview has been abandoned. Reality behaves in strange ways that stretch the popular worldview beyond its limits. 
Of course, this does not prove the truth of the religious worldview, but it does undermine the central reason for rejecting it. Perhaps we are approaching a day when science and religion, the science and religion we have known always at odds, will not be necessary enemies. Maybe we are approaching a day when those who affirm the sciences will not think it necessary to reject God. I hope so. But the point today is not that theoretical physics may one day become a great evangelistic enterprise. It will not. That's your job. Is the Lord among us or not? If I set a clock on the pulpit this morning and gave you 60 seconds to answer, would there just be silence? Is the Lord among us or not? The plain reality of this strange world in which we live says, we who believe should be the only evidence the world will ever need. Is the Lord among us or not? In your experience and in your witness, may it be so. Amen. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace to you.